Morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Charlie. Again, if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel. Begin in chapter 13. And this will be one of those days due to the length of our text and a lot of reading. It will be really helpful if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, whether it be in electronic form or if you want to take one of the copies of the pew Bibles that are there in front of you. It will certainly be helpful as we go through this passage of Scripture today. Sort of give you kind of an idea of what we'll be doing this morning so that you won't find yourself wondering, where is he going and what is he doing? Which can't guarantee that's not going to happen anyway, but at least if you have somewhat of an idea, we're going to look at the text. We'll make some points as we march through it, and then hopefully we'll be able to make some spiritual application to our life, learn some, some things that the text is here for, understanding that, as Paul said, that the things which were written aforetime were written for, for our encouragement in the, in the Word. As we study the Word, as we read of the things, not just in the Old Testament from Paul's perspective, but also all throughout the, the Bible, that it's written there so that we will ultimately have hope. Hope that we've already been talking about this morning and singing about. Uh, and thinking about even how while Pastor Scott is not a part of the uh, program that we're going through, Tim and I going through First Samuel, of how his message is talking about what is to come, how all of these things work together, for it, for it is God's word. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised when these things uh, come together and help us understand each other part of it. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to continue looking at the life of King Saul. And if you're like me, you, you just keep scratching your head. Even though we can relate to Saul in so many different ways in his immaturity, in his lack of fulfilling what seems to just simply be a calling of God on his life, going back and forth if we go back to first samuel chapter 11 which we won't need to but in verse 6 you may recall that that was where the spirit of god fell upon and rushed upon saul gave him victory as king over the amalekites giving him victory over their enemies and it's and, and when people were trying to get rid of those who weren't willing to fight saul said no god's given us the victory they celebrated in his kingdom uh, his reign over the kingdom of Israel began. But it was just the last sermon that we listened to from Pastor Tim from chapter 13, where Samuel, the prophet, speaks over Saul's life in not waiting for Samuel to arrive at the place of battle to do sacrifice, taking it on himself to do it. And Samuel says, Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord God with which he commanded you. And because of that, uh, the Lord has commanded you to someone else to be prince over his people. Your kingdom's not, you, you had a chance. Your kingdom could have uh, been influential throughout eternity. Because of your foolishness, it's not. So back and forth, back and forth, so that when we come to our text today, in verse 15, we begin our reading in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 15. 
Again, I'm reading, I'll be reading from the New American Standard, so if it's not exactly what you, you're reading through in the ESV there in the Pew Bible or in your text, uh, hopefully it won't be too confusing. But in verse 15, then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now, before we go any further, look at the first part of chapter 13. In verse 2, it says, Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men, 2,000 which were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan. Well, you notice what's already happening. Here in verse 16, of Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with him were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shuai. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border, which overlooks the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now, no backsmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and mattocks for the forks and the axes and the fix the hoes. And it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the lands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son, and garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. We look into the first part of chapter 14. Now it came, uh, they came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to, to the young man who was carrying his armor, come let us cross over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side, but he did not tell his father. Now Saul, verse two, was staying in the outskirts of Gabeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men and Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now, up to this point, it kind of describes for us the context of what is about to happen, the, the setting, if you will. Now, again, Samuel has already departed Saul, telling them that, you know what, you're a failure. Your kingdom's failed. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to end today, uh, but you know what? You, you blew it. So the first thing that Saul does after Samuel the prophet leaves is to start counting how many people he's got on his side because the Philistines are heavy in the land and they're threatening them. Now at the first part before Saul had messed up, he had 6,000 men. I'm sorry, not 6,000 men. He had 3,000 men, uh, if I could count right. 3,000 and 2,000 were with him. Jonathan had another 1,000. Well, now, after what has happened, the people who were with Saul, seeing how he has blundered, all that Saul can count now is 600. Even less than what he had before because the people are starting to doubt. They're realizing that this man who had been filled with the Spirit of God in leading them to battle over the Malachites has now taken matters into his own hands. He can't be trusted to be a good leader. And so many of them, most of them, have departed. 
And where is Saul now after he counts his people? Well, in chapter 14, we just read he's in a cave. He's not on the front line. He's not drawing the battle lines. He's not getting everybody worked up, ready to go into war like he did back in uh, the earlier part of his, his kingdom, his reign. But now he's just sitting around. Now, not only that, but the people that are with him have no weapons. Why is that? Because the enemy, the Philistines, have monopolized the iron industry there in the land in which they live so that the point where they couldn't make their own weapons and they were dependent upon the Philistines even for their farm equipment. So this is almost as laughable as when the king of the Amalekites came to threaten them and they said, wait a minute, do you mind if we go back and see if the people are willing uh, to just give up or to fight you? And he said, well, sure, go ahead. Just make sure that when you come back, you're ready to gouge out your eye. Now, these are the type of people, uh, these are the enemies that Israel has around them that here the Philistines have not even given them the ability to make their own weapons to fight with. And we read here that the Philistines are already starting to raid the area. Now, the land of Israel, while I've never been there, I've seen pictures, I've heard descriptions, uh, it's, it's somewhat similar while they have more mountains than the, the farmland that I live on, uh, but there are, there are very few flat areas on the property on which I live. And I was just thinking the other day as I was mowing the yard, as I was going over the hills and around the curves and everything, of just what life would be like if there was always a threat of just when you go over the hill on your property to see a raiding army coming your way. I don't think we think about that very often because unless you've actually been in warfare, you probably never even had a reason to think about it. But the Israelites, this is where they were. And from three different sides. And while they've seen God give them victory from time to time, their leader is in a cave right now. They have no weapons to fight with. They don't even have, based on... Jonathan, his son, which we're going to look at here in just a second, when he leaves with his servant, they don't even know he's gone. Where's the communication? Now, again, we're reminded about the fact that Saul didn't run for election. He didn't put his name in the hat to be considered to be king. God chose Saul to be that way. Now, I don't know... In my life, I know my, my dad celebrated his 85th birthday. We celebrate with and praise the Lord for the years that he's given him this past week. And one of the characteristics, one of the things that I, I may have gleaned from him or maybe gained from him was I watched my dad work. He was a manager all of, all of my life. He, he was a youth director. He was always in front of people. And so I think that I've sort of absorbed some of at least uh, – that sort of perspective where I'm, I'm, I'm not really afraid to get in front of people uh, and that hasn't always served me well because my mouth oftentimes will operate before my brain does and that gets me into trouble or maybe puts me into certain actions that I probably should not have been a part of. But again, at least to some degree, I can see from a human perspective as to my desire to, to want to be in some parts of leadership. 
Yeah, I, I was always the nerdy guy. I wasn't an athlete, so anyway, I was the hall monitor. I was the one, you know, who you know, the resident assistants in college, and so I was always one taking people's names down, turning them in, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, the popular guy. But I also, you know, had the opportunity to be class president. I was also a pastor of church. I mean, there's different things. I'm, I'm, I'm a manager now over, you know, a group of people. There's certain things that I think through my development, I can at least explain. Saul has none of that. We have no indication that Saul had any interest whatsoever than just hiding on the backside, losing his father's animals, which he couldn't find when he was out, you know, looking for them. So we think about the situation that Israel's in. They, they've seen this man used by God, but now they find themselves in a very difficult situation. Now, interestingly enough, his son, Jonathan, who was armed, as we were told, like Saul was himself as king, he went away again back in chapter 14 now the day came that Jonathan the son of Saul said to a young man who was carrying his arm come let us cross over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side now this is like jumping out of the kettle into the fire right but at least they they they're ambitious they, they have something in mind going on what is that Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over, verse 4, uh, to the Philistines' garrisons, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other uh, Sene. The one crag rose on the north opposite Mishmash and the other on the south opposite Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come, let us cross over the garrison of these uncircumcised, Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not distrained to save by many or few. Now, instantly we see a clear distinction between King Saul and his son Jonathan, who is his right-hand man. Saul is in a cave. Now, Saul does have a priest. Of course, he's of the lineage of that no-good priest Eli, who his household was cursed because of their wickedness but Jonathan on the other hand he's willing to risk his life going into these very dangerous places just to get to the Philistines to be able to do something why is it because he feels like he's got the stamina and the strength that his father doesn't have is it because he feels some sort of emotional tie to his people that he has to do something well no perhaps the Lord will work for us for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Isn't this refreshing? That Jonathan without any prompting, without obviously any example from his father, has an understanding that the Lord is able to do what he will. And he doesn't need a lot of people to do it if he chooses not to. So what does, what does Jonathan do? Jonathan said to the young man, verse 6, who was carrying his armor, come, let us cross over to the garrison. He's uncircumcised. Verse 8, we'll, we'll go ahead and skip down there. I'm sorry, verse 7, his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. And Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them, 
If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hands and this shall be a sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, Philistines said, behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer put some to death after him. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men with about half a furrow in an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp and the field and among the people, even the garrison and the raiders trembled and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. Wow. All because Jonathan and his servant who was faithful enough to follow wherever he led them had the courage to go up into the midst of the camp of the enemy who had already sent out raiders to attack all of them with thousands more soldiers than Israel had with the attitude that, well, the Lord, he may just do something well for us. He, he may do something, whether we have many or small, and that's exactly what happened. The ones that J Jonathan and his servant didn't kill were scared to death so much that the earth trembled all around. Wonderful example. Now, verse 16, we go back to Saul. And his watchman in Gabeah, Benjamin, looked, and behold, a multitude melted away. And they went here and there, and, said, and Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now, and see who has gone from us. When they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at, the, was at that time with the sons of Israel. Wow, what a great time to become spiritual. You start seeing two men out of 600 who are no longer with you go in and, and shake up the whole camp of the enemy. And then, all, oh, well, hey, where's the priest at? Let's bring in the presence of God. Let's start inquiring of God what we should do. Now, while, talk, while Saul, verse 19, talked to the priests, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to, to the priest, withdraw your hand. That didn't take long. Have you ever found yourself in certain dire straits or a situation that was desperate for you? And immediately you started to pray and things started to lighten up and then all of a sudden you didn't need to pray anymore? Well, that's where Saul was at. He thought, you know what, we really need to get the Lord on our side so we can really get some momentum going. But you know what, after, after all, I see things are kind of coming out on our side. So you know what, let, let's priest, you just put your hands back down. We don't need you anymore. Verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied. <laughs> How convenient. And came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. I guess there would be confusion, since every sword was against each other. They didn't have any. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even they who also turned, uh, turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim 
heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. Again, convenient soldiers who, like King Saul, was hiding. But when the tide turned, oh, now they're all ready to fight. When the enemy's scattered and confused, now's the time to go fight. But you notice that the writer of 1 Samuel here makes it very clear that it's not because of Jonathan, and it's certainly not because of the other Israelites who joined the fray afterwards, but the Lord delivered Israel. That day, and the battle spread beyond. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed, verse 24, on that day. For Saul, Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening and, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Wow, how rash. Here's someone who's hiding in a cave. He comes out as if he's going to take credit for the victory, and he's going to make sure, you know what, I'm just going to let everybody know that my enemies are not going to be defeated uh, until, or you're not going to eat food until my enemies are defeated. How arrogant. How foolish. All the people of the land, verse 25, entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father had put the people under oath. Therefore, he put his hand as any normal, logical thinking person would. At the end of the staff was on his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, your father strictly put the people under an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food today and the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land See how my eyes have brightened because I taste a little of this honey? How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has, been, has not been great. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to uh, Jalen. The people were very weary. People rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. They told Saul, saying, Behold, people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You've acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter if hear it and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. Now he's going to be picky. First, he's not going to let anyone eat until they've had battle, which makes absolutely no sense. They were weary, they were tired, they needed strength to fight, and the battle was not great because of that. But now that they finally gained victory and they're eating of the spoils, he's gonna be picky about the, what God truly did say, because life is in the blood, do not consume it. And so now Saul's going to uh, preach at him about that. So all the people that night, brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. Verse 35, and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. 
Now again, Saul, victorious, sprinkling here and there, we're bringing the priest in. No, we don't need your priest. Now we've got victory. Now we're going to build an altar to the Lord. Just not a lot of consistency here, is there? Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and take up the spoil among them until morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down to, after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, God, did not answer him on that day. Saul said, draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. He understood that there was something wrong. The reason why he wasn't hearing from God, because there must be something, some, there must be some sin in the camp. So let's investigate and see how the sin happened today. Verse 39, for as the Lord lives, he delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. Now, this is uh, similar to what God had introduced through the priesthood way back in Exodus. That in the clothing of the, the, the priest, there would be two pockets called the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly what this is because there's not a specific description about it. But it was something that was used by the Israelites to determine the yes or no from God about different actions, such as, should we go into battle? And so Saul is said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Verse 42, Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Saul said, may God do this to me and more also for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die? Who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So a very intriguing situation here, where Saul makes this oath and says, you're going to die if you take a food. But when he finds out that Jonathan, his son, who brought the battle is the one who ate the food. Let's kill him. His foolishness had put him in and painted himself into a corner. But the people came to uh, Jonathan's rescue. Said, how in the world can you kill the one who's brought us deliverance this day? And so Saul backed up and he went back and pursued the Philistines and went through to their own place. Just activities that we can't relate to. If you can relate to this in a personal way, I would love to have lunch with you today and hear of your exploits 
and to find out exactly what happened in your life. I would love that, but I don't think there's anyone here. I'll even pay. But I got to have at least a little bit of the story before we go to lunch, just to make sure that you're good for, for a really good. But, but can you imagine living in this day and living in these circumstances and having your leader lead in such a way But after all of this is over, notice it at the end of our passage, which, by the way, don't confuse that with the end of the sermon. I know you were getting really excited, man. We're almost, we're almost past. It's, we're going to get to K and W. No, actually, no, you're not. Verse 47, now, when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, the Philistines, and wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. Now, this is no surprise because God has already told us in his word that he's going to use the king before even Saul was named king. Your king will deliver you. He will save you from your enemies. And Saul is fulfilling that very word of God. Verse 48, he acted valiantly. I, I, well, I guess you would if your son is going out defeating your enemies for you and all you got to do is show up and kind of clean up. You're walking around like you own everything, right? And so he acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and Malchi Shua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahimaz. I'm sorry, there's no amount of Bible college, study, graduate work, or any type of seminary that's going to help you with these names. I'm sorry, just, you're just stuck. And the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now notice this, verse 52. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. They said, well, Mark, that's logical. You see a good soldier, you see a good uh, war hero, you see somebody who's 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 able, sure, you're, you're going to bring them in to your, your group. But notice, what, what did Saul do when he had 600? And what was Saul doing throughout the battle that we've just read through? He wasn't looking to God for help. For the one brief moment in which he had the priest come in to bring the Ark of the Covenant in to somehow bring them victory in his mind, when he saw that everything was okay, ah, put your hands down, priest. Don't need you. And here he is, after all that we have read through, not saying, you know what, I'm going to dedicate myself to the Lord giving us the victory. No. Where's the best men in the land? Those are, who are, those are the ones who I want around me. Those are the ones who are going to ensure victory. Even though, as it says here, all of the days of Saul, the war against the Philistines was severe. And his priority was not 
to follow after the Lord. Now, that's a lot. There's not a whole lot of exhortation that I can give to you from the pulpit about this. There, there are some things that we can learn, however. Whether you're a leader of people, whether you're just a sinner like Saul and can relate, there are some points that I would like for us to take away from this passage that hopefully I did not clutter up into your mind as I read through it. But the most important point about this passage is that I think consistent with the same important message that everything that Tim and I will preach through this book will be, and that is the inadequacy of Saul as king prompting a desire for a better one. The ultimate point of what I want you to get from this today, and I think, and Tim can correct me the next time he preaches, is if for any other message we have going through this book of 1 Samuel is the inadequacy of Saul, and you can also put in parentheses anybody else. As king, which should prompt us to take joy in that message that we've been reminding ourselves from last Sunday about, you know, there's, there's coming a city. <laughs> oh, man, just don't even try to measure it. Don't even try to think. It, it is too good. You can't imagine how good this, this coming kingdom is. And whether we find ourselves mired down in an election in this country or we think about the other leaders around the world and we think about the history in the past and we think about what bleak hope we have in mankind in the future, that we have an ultimate hope that Jesus Christ is coming again. That he is the ultimate king. He is the only king that is adequate to rule and to reign. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord, Samuel says, has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, we know immediately, if we have any Bible knowledge at all, that Samuel is speaking directly about David a man after God's own heart, a man who would honor in many ways the Lord in his reign. But we also know from this same David that that is not ultimately who Samuel is talking about because David, the author of Psalm 110 says this, the Lord, the Lord God says to my Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Jehovah, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. That is not David. That is David speaking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is coming again. That is the king that we should be looking for. That is the king that Samuel and all the prophets foretold of to be looking for, not just to the nation of Israel, but for all of us who are descendants of Abraham in his faith. 
That is the most important message. It's not that, well, you know what? It's not so much that the king's, that King Saul was bad. It's just we need more people like Jonathan. <laughs> oh, no. Because guess what? Jonathan is a human being tainted with sin. And Jonathan understood what? Maybe the Lord will do something good for us. I can't do anything. It's ultimately the Lord. So understand that the most important point about this message today is we think about what happened in this ordeal at Michmash with the Israelites and the Philistines, with Saul and with Jonathan, with the defenseless Israelites against those who had the weapons, the inadequacy of Saul or any other human being as king prompting a desire for a better one. The second thing, which is a lesser point, but still an important point, failure to cultivate spiritual maturity is dangerous for us and those around us. King Saul is a perfect example of this. His failure to cultivate spiritual dependence upon Jehovah, his failure to look anywhere else other than to the Lord for victory not only affected his own life, but it put at risk everybody that he was ruling. The worst case for Saul, he was just simply hiding out. The best case that we could think is he was inactive. There is no good example to follow from Saul's immaturity. But as Christians today, we need to remember, as Paul tells Timothy in his second letter in chapter 1, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, and of love, and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You see, our King Jesus has given us a call. And in giving us that call, he did not give us a spirit of fear in living in this world. In living in confrontation with the enemies that we see in this world. But he's given us a spirit of power so that we may be able to share even in the sufferings that come with serving the gospel. The inconveniences, the hardship, the pain. Those things that come along with serving our king, with being servants of the gospel, we've been given a spirit of power for that. We shouldn't be hiding in a cave like Saul. We should be out going out like Jonathan. And not only was Saul giving us a bad example of, of just hiding out, but the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Again, he, had, he called for the Ark of the Covenant to be there, but for what? He had no true dependence upon the Lord. But even in our day, as Christians, understand this, Paul says, that in the last days in which he gives us plenty of detail to understand that we are in the last days and have been for about 2,000 years, will come times of difficulty for people will have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And what does Paul say? Avoid such people. People who 
figuratively carry their Bibles everywhere they go, people who tell you all the church services that they've been to, people that tell you about all the conferences and books that they've read, people that tell you about all of their background of how many times that they were saved in vacation Bible school and how many times that they led people to the Lord, and all these types of appearances of godliness. But when you look at their life, there seems to be no power. We avoid such things. Saul had an appearance of godliness. Saul had the priest there, but he disobeyed God. This is a sign of immaturity. We as God's people, we who serve the king, shouldn't merely give the world around us an appearance of godliness, but we should have the power of God demonstrated in our life, not because we're superhuman, not because we're sinless and perfect, but because the grace of God exudes in everything in our life. That the fruit of the Spirit is there, not because we earned it and worked for it, but because the Spirit of God is filling us, working our life, which leads to the last thing. Rash decisions without God's direction. Paul tells the folks in Ephesus a lot of things, gives them a lot of doctrine, gives them a lot of practical instruction. But he says, look carefully then how you walk, or that's a figurative way of just be careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. You see, in Paul's day, there were those who worshiped false gods that felt that they would be more under control of the gods the more drunk that they got. The less control they had over life, the more that the wine and the spirits could take over their life. Paul says that's debauchery. That's wicked. But be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit will help you understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, again, is it going to help you figure out where you go to college? Is it gonna tell you who you should marry? Is it gonna tell you where you should work? Only if we only had those Urim and Thummim, right? Where we could just kind of roll the dice and try to figure out yes or no, God. But we understand that the will of the Lord is revealed throughout scripture. Paul tells us that we have everything that pertains to life and godliness right here. If we simply adhere ourselves to what the word of God plainly tells us to do, to abstain from things that the word of God tells us to stay away from, if we honor the Lord the way God's word tells us to, if we let the word of God dwell richly in us, then we can know what the will of the Lord is. And we won't make foolish oaths with, with people like Saul did with the people. We won't act rashly out of emotion. We won't live foolishly in a world that is full of foolishness. So we need to cultivate spiritual maturity, a maturity that wasn't found in the life of Saul, who is a leader of the people. But we should rather understand how dangerous that is, not just for us, for those around us. So it's imperative for us to know how to live in wisdom. And then a final point, 
the Lord brings victory. Um, songs that we've been singing today, I don't know if you've noticed. And I, I can be like Tim today. I can say, hey, whoever picked out the songs this week, Pastor Scott did a wonderful job. But every song that we have in here speaks of what God has done in bringing victory to us, either through the cross and this mystery that his plan from the, before the foundations of the world, that it's not within me that any of this is happening, but our God is sovereign, that he's leading us to a better country. He brings the victory. Jonathan got it right away. It may be the Lord who will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Matthew chapter 12. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Are you hoping in that name to bring victory today? You say, well, Mark, you don't know what struggle I'm at. It doesn't matter. But you just don't know how difficult it is. For, you know, I, I don't need to know. But the chosen one of God is coming in whom the Father is well pleased. And that is the one in whom we hope. Paul makes a little bit more specific. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, even the most ultimate enemy that we face, that's death. Christ gives us victory over it because he's been raised from the dead. We have that same hope. That's why we can, for those who we love and, and have spent our lives with in this world, when they, when, they, when they pass on, we grieve as those who have, we don't, we have, we grieve as those who have hope, not those who have no hope. Why? Because it's just beginning. They're with Christ. We'll see them again. That should bring peace to our hearts. But again, death in and of itself being a, what's on the other, you know what, I know what's on the other side. The scriptures tell me what's on the other side. And it's good. I'm not concerned. There's nothing in this world that should anchor me down so much that, well, you know, I would love to go to that city that Zechariah is talking about. But if I could just get this one thing in before I go. <laughs> See, when we, Why? Why would there be something else that we would rather do than to be with Christ forever? What is it in this world that could possibly ever match anything that you could imagine? That death is somehow going to, to interfere with. He's given us victory over death. 
He's even given us victory over our sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, Wretched man that I am. And he could say, Wretched man or woman that you are. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Because we, we still struggle. This is a, I'm living in a body of death. It is dying. It is corrupt. It is failing. Who, who shall save me from this body of sin? Well, same thing that delivers us from death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Lord brings the victory. For everyone who has been born of God, John says, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith in Christ. Our faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The faith that we have, the dependence we have in the work of Jesus Christ to bring us forgiveness because he took our wrath upon himself. He was bruised. He took the stripes. He was chastised for us. He brings the victory. And then finally, if you want to tie in here with an analogy for fighting, if you want to find yourself there in the land of Micmash, fighting the enemy, figuratively speaking. Finally, brethren, be strong, the Lord, and in the strength of his might. Because we have not left, been left weaponless as the Israelites were. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against Philistines. We don't wrestle against communists. We don't wrestle against evil, wicked people in this world. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, those other things are evil. Those other things should be fought against. Those other things should be resisted. But it's God's people. We're in a spiritual warfare. A spiritual warfare that has affected those things that we find in this world. A spiritual darkness that has clouded and corrupted the things in this world. But we have been given victory through Christ, and we should fight. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Not counting how many people around you are with you, but, but acknowledging it is the Lord who gives the victory. So thank you for your attention to this mishmash about micmash going from this narrative in the old testament to some 
figurative application for us in our spiritual existence and walk with Christ. But please understand that there is no king adequate for us other than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is our hope today. Understand that failure to cultivate a spiritual maturity will lead you into dangerous situations as well as those around you, just like it did with, the, with King Saul. And that understanding that ultimately it is the Lord that brings the victory. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe your word. Help us to find hope that only your word can provide. Lord, I pray that you would encourage each believer to understand that you are indeed king and that they would serve you faithfully and consistently as you give us the grace to do so. Father, I pray for those who are not yet believing that you would warn them that you, that Christ is king. And that there is coming a day in which he will unleash his wrath on the kings of this world when he returns. And that they would recognize that that is exactly what they deserve. But may they, by your grace, Repent and believe the good news that Christ has paid it all. And that they would find their hope in Christ Jesus who gives the victory. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we think about these things that your spirit who has provided us with and preserved your word would continue to teach us to change us and to make us more like Christ as your word, the living word of God, continues its work in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.